gonna get straight down to the next act. I'm very, very, very excited to see this performance, and mainly because I'm not quite sure what's about to happen, and I'm so game for every second. <laughs> yes. We know the drill. What, what happens first? Okay, well, thank you. Rob, what happens next? Fabulous, fabulous. Izzy, what happens next? From Boldface, this is Fear of Missing Out. Young people living in the UK, talking about the stuff we wish we'd learned in school. In each episode, a new presenter goes on a personal journey through the bits of British history that people aren't talking about enough. So I'm about to do some poetry. I'm Felix. Right now, you're hearing me perform at one of London's oldest and most iconic queer venues, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. My name's Felix, I'm an activist, performer, writer, professional chaos causer, and crank. Um, I am from London. No, I'm really messing I'm Just to let you know, this episode does contain some conversations about sex. Not on graphic, though, don't worry. So, I'm performing my collection Necromantic that I've had tattoos on my back, so you better like it or I've wasted a lot of money. And space on my body. I came out as trans when I was 13, and now I'm 21. In those eight years, it's become harder, not easier, to exist in the public eye as an out-trans person. For anyone listening who isn't trans, or doesn't know too much about us, trans is a broad term that's used to describe people whose gender is not the same as, or does not sit comfortably with, what they were assigned at birth. I get told a lot by cisgender people, which means people who aren't trans, that it must be really hard to be trans. And honestly, most of the time, it's the opposite. I love being trans. I know who I am, and I have amazing friends and queer family all around me. I'm living my life in the way I want to, and I'm having a good time while I'm doing it. What is difficult though, is that the UK media is pretty hostile towards trans existence. Trans people are such a tiny minority. We're estimated to make up somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2% of the population. Often, it feels like there are more articles debating trans existence than there are trans people in the UK. And those have only grown in number in the eight years I've been out. According to the Independent Press Standards Organization, There's been a 400% increase in coverage of trans issues in UK newspapers between 2010 and 2020. My question for this documentary is why are people so obsessed with me? Turns out, this isn't the first time the UK media has lost its mind over queer people. In the course of doing my research into LGBTQ history across the 20th century, the 50s really stuck out to me. Discussion of homosexuality just exploded in the public sphere. This is Justin Bengry. I'm director of the Centre for Queer History at Goldsmiths University of London, where I convened the MA Queer History, the first programme of its kind in the world. 
Justin specialises on the reporting around gay men in newspapers in Britain in the 1950s. The British tabloids, the weekend Sunday tabloids in particular, were in the 1950s and 1960s some of the highest circulation publications in the world. I focus a lot on the viciously homophobic material that appeared from the 1950s onward in the tabloids especially. A famous example of this wildly homophobic reporting was published by the Sunday Pictorial in 1952, which was the Sunday edition of the Daily Mirror. It ran a series of articles called Evil Men. The title kind of gives it away, the perspective that they had. They suggested that in the 1920s and 1930s, we all knew about the pansy. This was the terminology they would have used to describe effeminate gay men. And it said, okay, we had those pansies that we knew about back in the, in the interwar period. They're not dangerous. You can see them coming a mile away. They are pathetic, unmanly, ridiculous people. But something has changed. Today, dear reader, there are homosexual men who are invisible. They look like other men. They could be in the government, in the military, in sports, in schools. And it is precisely because of their invisibility that they have been able to infiltrate these institutions. Because of that, dear reader, they are deeply dangerous to society, to families, and to children. So it really launched that sense of danger and that threat of gay men that was posed to society. That description of gay men as a threat, as dangerous, as invisible, as a disease coursing through the nation in the most horrific and homophobic and vitriolic language. I think there are parallels to what we see today in the treatment of trans people in the press and the experiences they face uh, from that treatment. So this is the Evil Men series that was published in 1952 in the Sunday Pictorial, written by Douglas Worth. I love it. They said an increasing number of these evil men are being caught, despite the fact that the police regard these cases as the most difficult and dangerous that they have come across. That's my friend, Owl. I go by Ugla Stefania Christianadotir Jonsdotir, or Owl as well. I write mostly about trans issues in the media and, and do film as well. We met up at the Bishopsgate Institute in London because they have an archive of newspaper clippings about queer people, including copies of the Evil Men series that Justin was talking about. I mean, surely, like, murder and stuff is way more dangerous oh, than no. a bunch of men having sex. Oh, like... no, no, no. <laughs> Evil men. These men just having a good time and being themselves, not murder. You're having a laugh. Sexual acts between men were actually illegal when this series of articles came out. In prison, homosexuals find vast numbers of potential recruits, so they're worried about the prisoners being recruited to the homosexual agenda, it seems. <laughs> a year ago, one of the stately homes of England was taken over to make a new prison without bars in Gloucestershire. Let us hope that a year from now, another is taken over to provide a research clinic for perverts where they may be kept in treatment and custody until they threaten society no more. Wow. As a trans person, pervert is something that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. It is a word that probably out of everything I've heard the most. Yeah. 
being a trans person and, you know, having been assigned male at birth and going towards, you know, femininity, pervert is something they call me all the time. They call me like I'm some sort of a sexual fetishist or a pervert and I'm doing this for sexual gratification and that's always what they say. So this is really similar to how they talk about trans people today in some ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah. and I will are finding similarities in the language used between the 50s and now. British society in the 1950s was still very different to today. Some actions, some forms of behaviour which most people would regard as sins or repugnant or, or repugnant or distasteful or whatever. It Not wasn't all. until 1967 that laws were passed that decriminalized consenting same-sex acts between adult men over the age of 21 in private in England and Wales. There's more caveats than that. It's a really specific and limited achievement in 1967 and legal reform in Scotland and Northern Ireland would only come in the 1980s. In England and Wales, the age of consent for gay men was only lowered from 21 to 18 in 1994. And finally, from 18 to 16 in England, Wales and Scotland in 2001. That's the year I was born. Why did gay men become such a focus of the tabloid press in the 1950s? There was a greater interest in sexuality more generally in the press, and they were pushing boundaries. So that's one element that we can see. Another one was the moral and often homophobic positions of key editors, key authors, and key directors of some of the newspaper groups. They had their own concerns and their own homophobic agendas that they were promoting through the papers. The other element to look at is that in the case of the Sunday Pictorial, the Pictorial was itself a labor-leaning publication. It took this opportunity to use homosexuality to criticize Churchill's government, saying that it was failing the nation in letting this problem get worse and worse and worse. So they were exploiting the topic of homosexuality to make a political argument against their opponents at Westminster we see how the press is complicit in the production and expansion even of this kind of messaging that can do real harm. In the 1950s, they were talking about whether sexual acts between men should be legal. And now conversations around trans people so often like focus around genitalia. And it's just absolutely dehumanizing. Do you think there's a reason the papers necessarily feel like they have the right to use intrusive language like this? I think it's part of the strategies of sensationalization that come out of precisely this moment in the 1950s when they're evaluating how to drum up the greatest interest or rage or curiosity or titillation. These tabloids are in competition with each other and they saw sensationalism as a vital tool in their commercial arsenal. I read their memoirs, I read documents that they produced reflecting on their careers and on the press, and they are explicit that they are deliberately cultivating, creating, and designing the techniques of sensationalism purely to grab people's attention in a saturated marketplace of ideas in the press. 
there was a strategic use of queer people's realities, sometimes for other purposes that didn't directly involve those people themselves. And that weaponizing did real harm to them in the interests of other goals. So there's quite a long continuity of the scandal and the titillation of queer lives and experiences being used to sell media sources, newspapers, magazines, what have you, throughout the 20th century. While looking through the newspaper archives, Al and I had a conversation about the state of reporting about trans people in the UK media today. I think it really started with the Gender Recognition Act, which was the government proposed in 2016 that they would basically redo the Gender Recognition Act and they would make it better. The Gender Recognition Act doesn't really say anything important except you can change your birth certificate, which means that you can get pension and like all of these like really bureaucratic things. Yeah. Like no one ever shows their birth certificate anywhere. I came out in like 2014 when I was like 12, 13. It was easier then than it is now. Mm-hmm. It was. It, even 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 as a young bit, it, then it started getting hard, yeah, about 2016, 2017, yeah. That yeah. was when I really started feeling it and I hadn't made the connection between the Gender Recognition Act and that. After the government announcement around reform in the Gender Recognition Act in 2016, Owl noticed a significant increase in reporting across media outlets talking about gendered spaces, prisons, all of these other things which have nothing to do with the Gender Recognition Act. They use fear and they capitalise off that and they capitalise of concern and safety. And those are really emotive words which we use and that creates a lot of emotion when we hear it. When we say, oh, people are unsafe, most people will respond with, well, how can we make people safe? And they already have the answer to say, well, we can ban trans people from going into them because then it'll be safe. So they already know how to to play with people's emotions. More and more people start to believe it because they keep repeating it. It just gets repeated again and again and again. But I would have concerns about allowing somebody who is physically male into areas like prisons or um, hospital wards. A few years ago, UK LGBTQ plus charity Mermaids did some research into how newspapers talk about trans issues. The biological sex matters. They found that in 2012, there were no references to the phrase transgender lobby in the British press. In 2018 to 19, there were 151 mentions of that phrase and over 90% of the time, it was used in a negative way. The so-called transgender lobby silence and debate being deranged or aggressively militant. Is there a pro-trans lobby which is having an impact on decisions made by uh, NHS about, doctors? You know, they may wonder if that person still has some male appendages. In fact, that it would allow a man to wake up one morning to say, I am a woman. Of social contagion. I feel like trans people are often reported on as if we're some kind of dangerous club who are working together to corrupt everyone. When really, we're just people living our lives. There doesn't seem to be the same amount of rigorous, like, journalistic standards placed upon trans stuff. Actually, what I notice a lot, there are these sort of anti-trans voices who say, oh, so many lesbians are saying they're being coerced into sex by trans women. 
and then it turns out it's like a Twitter poll of 80 people and you're like, <laughs> how can you even begin to validate that a Twitter poll with 80 people is legitimate? So it's just really quite shocking. Another thing that happens all the time is talking about the medicalization of children. Newspapers report that children are being coerced into taking irreversible hormone treatments, which is plain misinformation. Puberty blockers are completely reversible, and they are the only element of trans healthcare permitted for under 16s in the UK. The media platforms will use different arguments, which to the general public just seem quite reasonable. We have to make sure that men can't access bathrooms and abuse our young girls. And this is what they generally call dog whistles. Anybody who isn't thinking about this in a trans context or whatever will be like, yeah, of course I want young girls to be safe. But what they don't realize is when they say men, they mean trans women. And that's what they constantly do. They talk about trans women in context with abusive men. You know, it's unsafe for trans women to go into women's spaces because then abusive men pretend to be women. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. There's, there's so many countries around the world who already have laws which allow trans people to use services according to their gender identity, including the UK, and this hasn't become a problem. You're not going to go through this whole transition just so you can use the toilets, like, you know what I mean? If, so, if someone's going to abuse anyway. someone, they're not going to stop because there's a female sign on the door. Yeah. It's like abusive exactly. men will continue and do abuse women all the time, and they don't care about bathroom signs. Why are you focusing all of that on us when we could all just unite together mm-hmm. and actually just take down the patriarchy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In September 2021, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe published a provisional report that states In the United Kingdom, anti-trans rhetoric has been gaining baseless and concerning credibility. Trans rights organisations have faced vitriolic media campaigns. This rhetoric, which continues to gain momentum, power and financial support, plays an active role in impeding legal gender recognition processes. So my name is Mark Thompson. I'm a black gay man. I'm cisgendered. I'm 52. I'm of Jamaican heritage and I live in Brixton in South London. Mark's the director of The Love Tank a community interest company that works to address health inequalities in underserved communities. I'm also a man that's been living with HIV for, oh, 32, 33 years, probably a little bit longer than that now. Mark got his diagnosis in the middle of the HIV epidemic in London in the 1980s. Whilst there are so many things that make mine and Mark's experience of growing up really different, we both were out queer people at times in which there was mass negative media attention on our lives. What was it like coming out when he did? I came out in 1985 when I was 16, so similar age to yourself when you came out. But I found my tribe of other black gay men really, really early on. I mean, within a week of me coming out and meeting my first boyfriend, I was at my first black gay party. I also used to describe going to clubs as like 
going to church, right? It was a one place where queer people could be completely safe. You could be yourself. You could let loose of all the pain and the heartache of the week in these spaces. So it was a real kind of spiritual experience as well. But I also knew Felix that outside of that little black queer bubble, that the world wasn't great. That if I went to white gay spaces, I wouldn't be welcomed. If I went to straight spaces, I wouldn't be welcomed. And this is also at the height of the HIV epidemic as well. How did you like first start like becoming aware of it? Like, what do you think were the first things you heard about it? I used to have porn magazines, which I stole, and it was a story in there about this thing, this mysterious illness. But in our little black gay community, it felt very separate to us because it was only white men that we were seeing. So we felt, well, that's over there. And it was only when I got my own diagnosis in November 1986, when I was 17, that it really, really hit home. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. What we've got to remember is that in the late 70s and the early 80s, you know, we have a really homophobic society and therefore we have a really homophobic media. So when the HIV epidemic hit, it was a perfect space for the homophobia to ramp up. The headlines in the press, the narrative, the stories on television, on the radio were horrific. They were stigmatising, they were violent, they were loud. There was a huge homophobic focus on gay men, but they were also demonising trans people, sex workers, lesbians, a whole host of people thrown under the bus. I'm relatively sensible, and I think I always have been, that I knew that this was a virus and it can affect anybody, and I just had bad luck. But what the media coverage and the wider societal reaction did do was make me internalise a lot of fear. So I knew that if I came out about my status in particular spaces, I could be met with violence. And I think it's really important to add that that wasn't just the wider society, right? This was also within gay communities because they were so scared and they were so frightened. And what do we do when we're frightened? We stigmatise and we other people because it's like, that's not me. So we push people away. It, ma it makes sense, doesn't it? Especially if that's all you're hearing about it, you know, yeah. when there's not, like, you know, good accessible information. Mark lived through a time when the media was so concentrated on his community in a negative, stigmatising way. I wonder what he thinks about media coverage of trans people now. You know, it's deeply upsetting and it's deeply frustrating. Read the headlines and just remove trans, put in gay remove migrant, put in black, and you'd have exactly the same thing that you had in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s. We have a deeply conservative media. It doesn't change, it just morphs. Do you think there are a lot of, like, lasting societal impacts on the way queer people were spoken about during the AIDS crisis? Yes. You know, what happens as a result of this is that at the time, there were quite a few progressive local authorities who were not only trying to do work around HIV, but also trying to change a narrative around gay men and women. So there was um, education happening in some of the left-wing local authorities, and the government's response was to clamp down on those things. 
1988, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher passed a law that's known as Section 28 or Clause 28, which prohibited the, quote, promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. While the law wasn't an outright ban of talking about homosexuality in school, it was a confusing and vague bit of policy that led to loads of teachers and students feeling unable to come out in school, let alone access healthy LGBT sex education. Clause 28 was political. Oh my God, what are they teaching our children? You know, we, we have to protect the kids. It's always about protecting the kids, right? Always. It's not really about protecting kids because you protect kids by giving them the information that they need so they can make healthy and informed choices about their lives. You don't protect children by keeping information from them. Yeah, it's so true. It annoys me so much when people say, it's about protecting the children, it's about protecting the children. Like, I had a really volatile childhood because of how people treated my queerness. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I was not being protected by these people who were saying, oh, you need to protect kids. And then they're like saying bad things about me when I'm like 15. It's like, you are the biggest hypocrites ever. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot while making this documentary that the British media doesn't exist in isolation. Take section 28. That was a blatantly homophobic law that had profound and lasting impacts for LGBTQ people in the UK. There must have been a real atmosphere of acceptance around homophobia for the government to feel empowered to pass that law. I see similar stuff happening now, like with conversion therapy. Amnesty International has called it a hideous practice, which can constitute as torture. In April this year, the UK government chose to ban conversion therapy for lesbians, gay and bisexual people, but not for trans people. It's not just our feelings are hurt when nasty stuff is written about us. The way the media reports on trans lives can end up creating a society that is actually dangerous for us to live in. Trans people are a small minority compared to the volume of attacks that they sustain. Othered people, marginalized people, are often from minority groups. They are in positions of difficulty to resist those attacks. That's not to say that resistance is futile. That's not to say that communities cannot band together to push back, resist, and demand change. In the case of homophobic media in the 1950s and 1960s, some of those publications did recognize that public opinion was shifting, and they did at least temper or change their positions over time. I don't think that's a kind of seeing the light. I think that was strategic and commercial, and they didn't want to lose their audiences as their audiences' positions shifted over time. So it does give me some hope as a historian that there is possibility for resistance and there is possibility for change. 
I think that our energy as queer people, as marginalised communities, as black and brown communities, our energy needs to be within ourselves. What is it? The best revenge is a life lived well. Yeah. And I think that's what we should do. I put all my energy now into talking to folk like you to make sure that you're okay. Yeah, I love that because that's definitely something, one of my values as well. It's like, you know, community action. If they realise, you know, we're, we're here, we're queer, we're not going anywhere, then eventually they have to change the narrative to, you know, fit us. And realise, like, we're a blessing. You know, I think we're, like, so blessed as queer people and people with intersectional realities, like, because we've seen, like, what people think of us, but, like, stayed truly unapologetically us, and most people don't even know who they are, and that's why they take their insecurities out on us. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fear of Missing Out. I'm Felix. Fear of Missing Out is a six-part series produced by Jesse Lawson. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Anton Ferry is our assistant producer for this episode and the executive producer is Steve Erchert. Thank you to Maya Miller-Lewis for our original music, to our historical consultant, Seda Ali, Thank you to Toby Malomo for our original artwork. Thank you to our advisory board, Arlie Adlington, Ellie Robson, Amani Mason-Jordan, Lynette Nora Onech and Emanuela Quinorte. Our mixing is by Mike Woolley. A special thank you to Melodic Distraction and the Bishopsgate Institute. Fear of Missing Out is a bold face production supported by the Audio Content Fund.